Listen, we've been in a series on the church. We're wrapping it up this morning, and we're just looking at what does the scripture say about what we're to be doing as a church? How are we to gather? What are we to be doing? How are we supposed to organize ourselves and think of ourselves? Think about the last time that you interacted with our government in some way. Okay, I want you to get this in your head. For some of you, it may be that you got a speeding ticket. That's interacting with our government. Some of you are trying to get permits for something. That's interacting with our government. If you've ever been to a .gov site, usually it's not fun. It's not like holiday. You're like, I'm going to go there for fun. But think of different ways. Maybe you're in, in, in government class. Maybe that's how you've interacted with, with government lately. But think about the last interaction that you had with the government, and I want you just to kind of tap into what you think toward that process and, and towards our government. Here, here's what I think. I think that most people, when you talk about authority and power, uh, tend to have a love-hate relationship. With authority in general, but government in particular, okay? Uh, we played Simon Says because maybe Simon Says, that little simple kids game, kind of, kind of describes one's attitude toward the government or toward those who are in authority over them. Man, it's always someone trying to tell me what to do. I don't know who Simon was, but he must have been kind of a bossy kid, so they called it Simon Says, right? But there's always someone up front trying to tell me what to do, and I have to do what he says, and he's trying to trick me. And when I don't do it just the right way, he's out to get me. And sometimes our experience, kind of our knee-jerk reaction towards authority, teachers, it could be parents, it could be your principal, it could be your boss at work, it could be your your leaders in society or leaders in the church, there's kind of this knee-jerk reaction to kind of be suspicious. And there's kind of a love-hate relationship that goes on with that. We're talking this morning, the way that we're wrapping up is to look at how is a church to organize itself? How is it governed? God is a God of order. We see this in in the creation. We see that in the design of things, in the design of relationships. And so how has he set up his family to function and to be governed? Now, last week we looked at the mission. We talked about the biblical metaphor that the church is the military, that the church is the, the Lord's army, so to speak. And that, and that God has the church on a specific mission. He desires that people of the world be saved, and the church's mission is, is, is about that. Now, we talked about the idea that the, the mission is counterintuitive. It's supernatural, if you will, because it's unnatural to us. And the idea with churches is a lot of times we will tend to have mission creep, right? We'll tend to start doing really, really good things for people in our community, but we'll forget to proclaim the saving message that Jesus is the only way to God. The gospel is the power of, of all people to be saved. So sometimes we can get off track that way. Sometimes churches get so into the proclamation and their doctrine and saying things, this is what's right, this is what's true, and getting all that lined up that there's no more love anymore. They're not living it out. They're too busy studying it and beating up people who don't agree with their doctrine. So, so there's all kinds of ways we can, we can get off course with this. But, but, but God's given the mission uh, really clearly to us, and it's upside down to kind of our natural bent. That's why we need to keep checking with the Bible. That's why we need to keep submitting to the Holy Spirit to say, God, let's not let this be about us. Now, doesn't it stand to reason that if the mission is kind of counterintuitive and un fleshly or unnatural to us, 
that the way that we're governed or organized would also be counterintuitive at times and also be unnatural, supernatural, a different kind of way of being organized. And as we read the scriptures, that's exactly what we find. It's, it's unnatural, so to speak. Let me go back to this definition that we've been working off of in terms of thinking about what a local church is. Now, these words aren't all found together in a specific passage, but this grabs a lot of complex ideas about what the local church is, and it compacts them. A lot of it found in Acts chapter 2 with some other ideas um, thrown in there. But for the sake of our talk this morning, let me bring up, let me just highlight a few of the words that, that will help us think about how a church governs itself. Do you see that we're, uh, we organize under qualified leadership? Different than a lot of other organizations, there's no signing bonus for joining this church. So if you're a visitor today, sorry, we took that off the table. I'm kidding. We never had it. Um, uh, there's, there's, no, there's no forced draft. You are here voluntarily organizing yourselves under qualified leadership. The question that ought to come to your mind is this. Well, who says who's qualified? I mean, who gets to make that call? We organize under qualified leadership, but who says who's qualified? Here's another one. Uh, that's not it. We'll leave that up there. They gather regularly for preaching and worship. Who's to be preaching? Who's to be leading the worship? Who are leading these things and who says who gets to lead these things? Look at the word disciplined. They are disciplined for holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Matthew 18, amongst some other passages, talk about how the church is to discipline. If, if there's no discipline in your family, it's not that you love your kids so much you can't discipline. It's that you don't love your kids enough to discipline them. So it is in the household of God. So the question is, who decides who disciplines and how is that carried out? Those are good questions to ask. Finally, look at the word scattered. We're scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world. Just in that one world word scattered comes these kinds of ideas. Who distributes the resources? Who sets the priorities and the strategies and the agendas and the timelines to make that scattering happen? Who is it that's providing accountability to see that the, that the mission is on track and that we're not getting off course? Who is it that's providing metrics to kind of measure, are we being effective? Should we still be pouring resources into this or is that no longer effective? All that I've just described to you is the role of leadership. All those different things that are highlighted in this definition of a local church is the role of leadership. And the Bible has much to say regarding how the family of God is to function, and God gifts the church with leadership. If you have your Bible, I want you to open up to 2 Timothy 3. We're going to start in 2 Timothy 3 this morning uh, in, in just a moment. Before we get into some specifics, let me tell you how the morning is going to go. I want to give you kind of the giant banner headline that I want you to walk away with. That if you hear nothing else that I get, I want you to get this opening part because it really, um, it really informs everything else. If you don't get the opening banner, then all the minutia of kind of the details of it, of how we express some of these things, um, starts to fall apart and doesn't, and doesn't make any sense. So God's way has always been to appoint leaders and governors and judges that serve under him as high king. That's how it's been. God has said, I'm the high king, but I will appoint leadership roles and offices within my nation of Israel and within the church to help carry out those things. You know what? The natural man, the natural woman doesn't like this. 
We rebel against this. And it's not something new. Let me point to the Old Testament for a second. In the Old Testament, they, 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 they said this. The nation said, give us a king. God came and said, I'm going to be your king. The Old Testament people said, we don't want you as a king, essentially. We want what they have. That guy has a really cool crown, neat robes, and he has a killer chariot. We want that. Give us that. What did God do? Ultimately gave them a king. Saul, right? So they, they got what they wanted, but it wasn't the primary design. It wasn't what, what God had initially set up. His rule was to say, I'm your king. Let that be enough. The people didn't want that. How about the New Testament? Maybe it was expressed in different ways, but here's what jumped out to me. In the New Testament, it was this. There were people going around saying, I follow Paul. Other people who were arguing with the people who were saying, I follow Paul, saying, well, we follow Apollos. And they were bickering and fighting about their leader. Now, Paul's a pretty big deal. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. God used him to do a lot of things. He obviously was a very powerful, gifted, skilled leader who made things happen in a way that was God-honoring. But what happens is people want a king. It's no different than the Old Testament. They want a king. It's easier to have someone like Paul who they can see and say, that's the guy that I follow. Look at how he does that. I'm going to go with him. I trust him. What did Paul do? Paul came along and told people who were kind of bickering and fighting about this. He said this, look, I'm the gardener who comes along and plants seeds. Apollos is the water. He's the guy that comes and waters seeds. We're nothing. Your Lord is Jesus. Your King is Jesus. That's who you should be following. I'm sure he was horrified that as he went out and made disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, that people would turn around and become disciples of him. Now, can't you put yourself in Paul and Apollos' place and say it would be a little flattering to have people come along and say, I follow Paul. I think Apollos is all that. I think he's the man. But these guys were spirit-filled men who said, no, that's, that's heresy. That's exactly the opposite of what I would ever want you to go do. That's just forming an earthly king. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to die one day. I'm still a sinner in process. So the one who waters, the one who plants, is nothing. Only he who causes the growth. Now, has that gone away today? I don't think so. I think it's just had 2,000 years to mature. Let me give you the Old Testament example of I want a king, okay? Every time that you put more weight, and the idea of placing weight in something, think of a rock that would go into a big pitcher of water. If you put a big rock that displaces a lot, that's a lot of weight in there. It's, it's the same idea, it's the same concept of the word glory. If you put more weight or more glory on what some governor tells you is morally true over what God tells you is morally true, you all of a sudden are leaning now towards putting your hope, building your foundation on a government or on something that, that someone else says, on a kingdom that's here on earth. Okay, That's the I want a king uh, mindset. Now the church, here's the, here's the New Testament version of we follow Paul, we follow Apollos. The New Testament version of that, or the, or the, the modern day version of that is this. There are some authors that some of you follow and read religiously, and some blog writers and some podcasters that write, and someone that you heard at a conference once, and maybe your own local pastor or your small group leader or your mentor from 20 years ago. And essentially, although you may have never quite said it in these terms, you're in danger of doing that same heresy that Paul's trying to correct in 1 Corinthians, which says, 
man, don't follow a person. Follow the Jesus that that person points to. Here's a little test for yourself. If you find yourself quoting your favorite author, your mentor, your pastor, your favorite blogosphere, writer, whatever, uh, more than Jesus, you might be in danger of being that person's disciple instead of a, a disciple of Jesus. If you have a little bracelet that says WWPD, what would Paul do? Or whatever your person's you know, P initial would be, you might be in danger, right, of, of going off track. And, and Paul said it this way, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't follow me for following me's sake. And I think any mentor, any pastor, any author, uh, who's spirit-filled and wants the glory of Christ, would say exactly the same thing. And yet we're just prone to that. We have to fight against that, uh, lest it kind of take us over. All right, here's the big banner. Here's the central point I want you to walk away with. Jesus is our king. For today's idea of talking to the church, Jesus is our senior pastor. Let that settle in. He was sent to die as a substitution for our sin. He rose from the dead. He ascended back to heaven. He is coming again. So if you get nothing else about church government and how we are to lead and how we're to follow and who we're to submit to and all of that, get this, that Jesus is our senior pastor. Any leadership that comes along in the church is as an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd. That's the big idea Jesus is the example that we follow. So as you're following someone, you're not really following them. You're seeing Christ in them, and you're following Christ, and you're looking to them as they follow Christ. That's the, the idea that we want. Now, how many of you have been to, um, to a capital city of any nation in the world? Raise your hand. Okay? I've been to, I've been to just a couple. Uh, the one that struck me by far the most was Beijing, China. Because in Beijing, China, is something called the Forbidden City. And in the Forbidden City, there is a structure set up there. Think about all the great capitals of the world and how if you were a leader trying to set up um, an earthly kingdom and rule, what kind of building would you build, right? I mean, aren't all the great capitals of the world, uh, they, they, show, they show power and strength for the here and now. They're built impressively. The Forbidden City is a, is a succession of, I think, seven buildings and courtyards that are just massive. Go Google Earth this thing. It's giant. And it says to people outside who were, for the longest time, forbidden to go in there, because that's where the emperor and his family lived, it it said to, to them, you are a flea. Like, you are a flea, and there is a massive wall separating you from ever being inside rubbing shoulders with those who are in charge and are in leadership. Now, it's a pretty good way to set up a, a kingdom uh, here on earth that lasts for a long time. If you can be behind that big wall, guard it really well and, and kind of keep, you know, keep the common people at bay. Now take all the great world's capitals and buildings and structures that you might see, even Washington, Washington DC where everything kind of comes in and it has a focal point. Take that and contrast that to the kingdom of God. Take it and just in your mind, begin to think about how God has set up his rule and his authority here on this earth. I want the band to come up because in a second, you're going to hear a song that we often sing together at Christmas time, but sometimes it's more powerful to sing Christmas music in March because you get that same thing. And it's contrasting the world's leader to the way God does things. Let me just point out a couple of things. It was predicted Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, that the government shall be upon his shoulders. And yet, where was Jesus born? 
in a barn. An obscure barn at that. Not even the most famous opulent barn, but an obscure barn in an out-of-the-town way. Uh, He was predicted in Isaiah to be the suffering servant. And isn't it true that Jesus was mistreated and accused? Of course it was. And then on the cross, what was the inscription above the cross on, on the little sign above Jesus? What, was, what, what, what did it say? King of the Jews. And so it is. I mean, isn't it powerful to think that there was someone inscribing that name, King of the Jews, probably in mockery, like some king, right? Here's your king, Jews. You're an oppressed people. We're over you. Here, here's your king. And yet in God's sovereign plan, he was writing an absolutely true statement. This is our king. And 700 years before, what just had transpired in him dying on the cross and all that led up to it had been prophesied and was now being fulfilled in their presence. So that's all true about God's kingdom, but also this. While Jesus was here, He caused such a stir that whether you're a believer this morning, a disciple who follows him, or a person who rejects him, you cannot deny the wonder and majesty and scope of the impact that this carpenter from an out-of-the-way town of of Nazareth caused 2,000 years later. The miniseries starting tonight on the History Channel. I'm always curious when, when... Uh, stories are told about Jesus and about the Bible. We're approaching the Easter season. What happens at the grocery store at Easter? All the magazines flood with the faces of Jesus. And a lot of times, the articles, the headlines, everything, it's really offensive because that's my Lord and Savior and it's inaccurate what's being said, which is no different than the Gospels that I read about how how Jesus was misunderstood. But isn't it powerful that 2,000 years later, worldwide, Christians and skeptics alike are going to be talking about Jesus in these next few weeks? Powerful. Finally, not only does he have a kingdom that's going to last a few dynasties, which is fairly impressive. If you have a kingdom that lasted a few dynasties, that's impressive. His is for all eternity. So this same Jesus that came as a suffering servant, was born in a barn, was killed on a cross with a mock inscription, King of the Jews, and wore a mock crown of thorns, is coming again and has not lost his rule and his authority. I want you to listen to this song comparing and contrasting any king, any rule, any leadership that you know of to the one that Christ has set up. This gospel that Christians celebrate is this, that the king that you have violated is the very one that paid the ransom so that you could be acquitted. That's what it is. That's, That's in a nutshell what's going on. There are just some great passages that talk about the fact that we've been freed from the, the, the dominion, the, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of light. And that's what's going on with the gospel. All right, so if that's the head, this is what I want you to remember. Jesus is our senior pastor. So everything we, we talk about from here on out uh, keeps that in mind and keeps that as the focal point. Now, what's interesting is the Bible, as you, as you read through the Bible, there's a surprising amount of freedom as to how a church can govern itself. I would have thought that God would have set up very specific things on how the New Testament church is supposed to govern itself. But instead, it's almost like God built a giant playground with a, with a fence with a lot of freedom in it, and he gave some guideposts saying, don't go outside this fence, but within that fence, there's a lot of different variety. 
That's why we can be in partnership with a lot of churches that, that do things a little bit differently. Just like one family kind of handles things a little bit differently than others, but, but they're joined and united on some, on some core things. So what I want to do is I want to take a look at some scriptures that are these guideposts, okay? And as we do that, I want you to keep in mind, those of you who've traveled to a great capital city, if you haven't traveled there, think in your mind what it looks like. I want you to think about the world systems and the world's uh, governments and leadership and how that's set up and how it contrasts to what the Bible talks about. We had an international student. We used to take international students to Disneyland all the time. And we had this international student named Chiaki. Chiaki was from Japan. And uh, she had been to Tokyo Disney. So it was fun kind of talking to her. And she went to Disneyland with us. And so one of the first rides that we went on was Pirates of the Caribbean. So I'm sitting next to, to Chiaki. And we're on the Pirates of the Caribbean. And we're cruising along. And we're kind of going along. And I said this. I said, um, I said, Chiaki, I said, you know, is this, do you guys have Pirates of the Caribbean at Tokyo Disney? Yeah, we have it. And so I'm like, oh, okay. And so we're driving along. And I, and I go, um, I go, do you guys have, you know, have, have those things over there? Those little, you know, fireflies? Yeah, we have the fireflies. So I'm kind of being a pest. Just, I'm, I'm wanting to hear the, the uh, things. And she said, I'll, I'll tell you when, when something's different. I go, okay. Well, I didn't believe her. So that first little dip that we take, you know, I'm like, did you have that? She goes, yeah, we had that. I'm like, okay, okay. You know, uh, all these different things. And then, uh, you know how you're going along the parts of the Caribbean and all of a sudden that kind of bigger drop near the end hits. So we kind of go, or we kind of nose over it and we start into the drop and about halfway down the drop, you just hear this, different! That was Chiaki letting me know that that was different. She let me know. She promised that she would. So as we go through things that are different, okay, we're, we're going to notice that, that the qualifications are different. The nature of the work is different. Even the specifics of how you interact and how you organize, it's just, it just looks different, and it should feel different. We don't have to try to make it different. It just is different with Christians. All right, First uh, Timothy, I think I said Second Timothy earlier maybe, but First Timothy chapter 3 is where I want you to be. I want you to see these for yourself. We just announced a couple of weeks ago two new intern elders that for the next year are in a process um, of, of meeting with us and and we've seen them, and, and we went through that whole deal. And when we mentioned the qualifications, but I want you to I want you to see the qualifications uh, in front of you. First Timothy chapter three, uh, verse one says this. It says, "The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, some of your translations say elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife." Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Flip over in your Bibles to the right, to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, it's a tiny book right after the Timothys. These two passages that we're going to read are, are two of the key passages looking to say, what are the qualifications for those who lead the church? Verse 5 starts this way. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writing to Titus, so that you may, so that you might 
put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here we have two passages. Those aren't the only two places that speak of qualifications. There's several other places by inference that we can see. Uh, here's how an elder ought to conduct himself. Um, that's being read in the public assembly this morning for a couple of things. One is I just want you to leave the baggage outside of the church right now in terms of what you may have brought in. For people who were self-appointed leaders, people who rose because of different, uh, different circumstances, the Bible gives indication of who's qualified and who's not. Now, that's not saying the specific person. There could be several people who are qualified, and then there has to be wisdom shown in, in, in who steps forward to be uh, an elder. And there's other, we don't have time for it, but there's other indicators that say, he who desires the office, what does that look like? And so there's some other, other factors there. Why does God hold such a high and strict standard? I'll tell you a good emotion to feel if you're ever an elder being interviewed for this, I don't think I meet the qualifications. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you what undoes you right out of the gate, above reproach. That literally means blameless. So there's an ongoing burden and sense of saying, who can fill this? I mean, who's able to, 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 to walk in this? And yet, and yet there it is, and the way God has done it through the centuries is to say, here's godly... Uh, church leaders appointing other elders and, and, and lifting them up. Um, Hosea, don't, don't turn there, but just write Hosea 4.9. The principle is this. Whatever the leaders are, the people become. So in Hosea 4.9, the gist of that is like people, like priests. Write this one down, Luke 6.40. It says, a disciple, this is Jesus talking, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Parents, we get this, don't we? We're disciplining something in our children, and we go, wait, wait, wait a minute. That's a struggle that I have as well. I wonder where they got that. And then a mirror magically shows up right in front of you, and you go, oh, they got it from me. Some of you have been on, on athletic teams, maybe, where the coach didn't even participate in the sport he's trying to train you in. That's very frustrating. Conversely, when you're under a coach who, has, who is way better at you at that sport still, and he's an old dude, there's something about that that spurs you on and says, maybe I have something to, to learn from this person. The qualifications are different. How different are the filters that you and I look through when, when we would appoint leaders for anything? I mean, here's some of the things that, that came to my mind. We would look at experience. We would look at talent. We would look at charisma, stature, lineage, education, how well we click with them, right? That's, those are the filters we would, we would kind of put forward. So many times, that's not who God chooses to use. I hope that you're taken with the fact that God uses very, very ordinary people. Again, don't turn there, but just write this down so you know I'm not making it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, super encouraging passage. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, it says this. 
Paul writing to a church. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to list some of the most heinous sins you could think of. All kinds of perversions. Those who are, those who are, who are addicted to sexual things that are destroying their life. Those who are addicted to alcohol that's destroying their life. Those who are prone to violence. Those who are habitual liars. He goes on to list all these things. And then in verse 11 it says this, And such were some of you. He's writing to the church. He's saying, church people, the unrighteous are in for wrath. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And here they are so that we're really crystal clear. Go read the list. And then he says this to the church people. And such were some of you. You were those same dastardly things. And then it says this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Do you notice the passive participation that we have in all of this? You were washed. You were sanctified. It isn't that you cleaned yourself up and now you're going to inherit the the, the kingdom. It's not that you somehow sanctified yourself. It was done for you. That's the beauty of the gospel. We don't work our way into leadership. We don't work our way into God's good graces. We certainly don't work our way into a place where God can now use us. But instead, God does the washing. God does the sanctifying. That's a thrilling verse for all the screw-ups in this room, which you ought to think, that's me. I mean, as good as a front that we can all put on for an hour and a half on a Sunday, that's me. And God can take that and redeem it and use it for his work. It's absolutely, it ought to make your jaw drop anytime God uses you in any way, shape, or form for the, for the spiritual kingdom. It's unbelievable that he can take us and... And use it for good. All right. So not only are the qualifications different, let me move on to the work. The work is different. Government leaders, if you didn't know this, are known as public servants. Now, at the risk of offending any of you who are government leaders in here this morning, maybe you know someone personally, but I think there's a lot of cynicism in our country and certainly around the world when leaders take abuse of that power. And by opulent meals and opulent hotel stays and opulent travel, we, we look at that and say, really, they're servants of the public? They seem to be taking that power and using it for their own good. What a tragedy if we bring the same mentality. Man, if I could just get in the boss's chair so I could start calling some shots and having those perks. What a tragedy if our church were to head down that same path. I was reading from a book this week talking about the work of spiritual leaders. And I just want to quote, quote it at length uh, because it's helpful. Many contemporary church leaders fancy themselves businessmen, executive, entertainers, psychologists, philosophers, presidents, or lawyers. Yet those roles contrast sharply with the symbolism Scripture employs to depict pastors and spiritual leaders in the church. In 2 Timothy 2, for example, Paul uses seven different metaphors to describe a spiritual leader. He pictures the minister as a teacher, a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a workman, a vessel, and a slave. Each of those images evokes ideas of sacrifice, labor, service, and hardship. They speak eloquently about the complex and varied responsibility of spiritual leadership. Not one of them makes out leadership to be glamorous. That's because it's not supposed to be glamorous. 
That's a good word for anyone in this room who's aspiring to serve the Lord full-time in ministry. I hope that you do. I hope God paves the way for a brand new generation and those who are in a current career who assess where they're at and say, I can't describe it, but God's calling me out of what I've been trained to do to serve him full-time. But let me just be crystal clear. I was given the same advice going into this. I wanted to be an architect. God didn't let me. If you're going to go down this road, that's what you're signing up for. Those are the metaphors that the scriptures teach. And so get ready to get to work. So how are we to govern ourselves? The qualifications are different. The work is different. The further up you go, so to speak, the more you get low as a Christian leader. The more base you become to lift others up. How are we to govern ourselves? Let me just spend a couple of minutes as we close in thinking about some of the specific scriptures that that point to that. First of all, know that authority and submission are not bad words. There are some people in this room that just kind of flinch when you hear that because of past abuses. And that's where we need to let God redeem those, those words for us and say, those aren't bad words. Some people in this culture say, man, no one's ever going to ever tell me what to do. Those are not fun people to be around, and they don't lead successful lives. That's a rebellious thing. That's a rebellious lifestyle that's contrary to how God sets it up. Jesus is the chief shepherd, the senior pastor, the ultimate authority, and, not or, but and, he appoints leaders in the church to build up his church. So, how are we to submit and how are we to lead? And by the way, before you put yourself in a camp, am I a follower or am I a leader? Here's what I would venture to say. I'd venture to say that there are far more leaders in this room than, than you even think of. Because there's a, there's a position right now that I hold that no one in the room holds, and that is I'm the one speaking and you're, not, and, and, and you're not. You're listening. So you don't hold this position, but some of you in this room are community group leaders. The way our church is set up, chief shepherd. All pastors, elders are under-shepherds to the chief shepherd. If you're a community group leader, you are an under-shepherd to the under-shepherds so that you can care for a smaller group of men and women, individuals, in their, in their spiritual need. If you're a parent, a grandparent, an aunt or uncle today, you are, as a Christian, a leader. You're training up the next generation. You are to be, you are to be looking in the mirror when Luke 6.40 says, hey, the way you're going to be is how the people that are coming up behind you are, 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 are going to be. So be God's man. Be God's woman. So probably all of us in this room in some ways are followers and need to hear those passages and in some ways are leaders or aspire to be leaders. I hope you aspire to be a good godly husband, young men. I hope you aspire to be a godly wife, young women. And so one day you you may be in this position. All right, so follow your leaders. How are we to follow our leaders? Hebrews 13, 17. You can just write it down if you, if you, don't, uh, if you don't want to turn there. Uh, but by being a, a, a blessing to them. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Don't be a follower in such a way that your leaders oh, groan. Did Moses groan? Yes. Did he have every right to groan? Read it. Yes, he had every right to groan. Was it good for the people that their leader was groaning? No. He wanted to serve them in love and be diligent to these things. But man, he was a, he was a man who you know, walked the earth too. And he groaned. 
So follow in such a way that you're a blessing to your leaders, not one that would make them groan. Secondly, by honoring them, 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those in preaching and teaching. How do you show honor to someone? You show honor in a variety of ways. I'm not going to get into all of them, but think of the same way that you would choose to honor your mother and father. It's different, but there's a, there's a variety of ways. It's not that you wait for a ceremony and then clap really loud. That's how you honor them. It can be done in really subtle ways. You could honor them by esteeming them, your leaders, at the top of your prayer list. You know, that's a way of honoring your leaders. It's to say, wow, God, you put this person in, in, in charge in this realm, so I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to honor them by, by praying for them. It doesn't mean you never cross them. It doesn't mean you don't ever come to me after your service and say, hey, Dave, I've got to talk to you. I've scheduled some time with you. Because you said something that seemed just from my biblical understanding a little bit different. Can we talk about that? I don't live in the Forbidden City. I'm not behind a giant wall. Ben's tall, but he, you know, he lives behind short fences too. So if someone's up here, if someone's up here preaching and, and, and you think there's, talk to us. It's not that we're untouchable with that. But isn't there a way to do that in an honoring way and a really dishonoring way? There's a way that can make me groan when I see you coming. Oh, boy. You know, if I'm praying, Lord, give me the extra grace right now. Every time you approach me, there might be some, some conviction and change that needs to, to happen with you. It may be my own thing too, but that's, but that's part of how we do it. And I, I got to say, I've, I, I love serving here. It's not without hardship, but I have had brothers and sisters come to me in, in, in a very, very honoring way that totally disagree with me. And we've hashed it out and talked it through, and, and it doesn't always end up happy, hunky-dory, where we you know send Hallmark cards to each other. That's not always how that thing ends but we can still walk together in, in the love of Christ. Let me move on. That's how you follow your leaders. How do you lead your followers? The Bible has lots to say about that too. By example, 1 Peter 5, 1-4. There's so much in this passage, I would challenge you, I would invite you, go and read this again later on when we have more time, or when you have more time. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory of what is going to be revealed. Here's the instruction. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Don't you love it? Here's how you're to lead, leaders. And at the very end of that little part of the passage, he brings to mind this idea that the chief shepherd is coming. So we're to, we're to lead by examples and willingly and eagerly and not domineering. How different that is than so many different leaders in our lives outside the context of, of, of the church. We're to lead carefully. Acts 20, 28 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. If you're a Sunday school teacher, a community group leader, a pastor who's about to preach a sermon, preach the sermon to yourself first. If you're going to teach a lesson to children about honesty, teach a lesson to yourself first about honesty. Sit before the Lord and say, God, would you convict me of places where I'm not telling the truth before I go and teach other children to be honest and upright? That's part of the burden. Ask my family. 
That's part of the burden of being a pastor's kid, of being in a pastor's home. It is burdensome to come up here and to teach. I don't ever stand up here and say that everything I teach, I've mastered 100% or else I'd be, you know, Pinocchio with a long nose. But I will say this, I commit to you, I preach these sermons to myself all week long and God convicts me over and over. And there's a burden to that. There's a weight to that, isn't it? I'll tell you the worst kind of weight. The worst kind of weight is to be a community group leader, a small group leader, or a pastor who is teaching and preaching others while knowingly, exorbitantly living opposite of that. That's a burden too. So when you teach, when you instruct, there is a burden to that 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 goes along with that. So pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock amongst you. So a part of why... Uh, ben and myself and the other elders, uh, I hope that you know us. I hope that we know you. We are taking diligent steps to, to, to be in your lives and to shepherd you. Sometimes it's easy in a church to have the squeaky wheel get all the attention and those who are prone to that, but there's others who are quietly sitting in a church who need the same encouragement, who might need a rebuke, who might need uh, a, a word of love or an arm of love, and they can go by unnoticed. So just like in a family, it's paying careful attention. Love this word carefully because it's care fully. It's, it's, it's care to the uttermost. This is not an eight, you know, uh, eight, eight to five type job. It really goes on all the time. Finally, for this morning anyways, is that we're to do it under authority. As you lead, no matter what position God calls you to lead, lead as though you're under authority yourself because you are. So you lead as a fellow follower. And that's going to show up in, in the countenance of, of, of how you lead. It's going to, it's going to show up in, in how you think through policies and organizations and how things ought to happen. Now, do leaders fail in that? Nod your head yes with me. Yes. Every leader fails in that. Man, the communication that in hindsight, you're like, that was so simple. That should have happened. How did that not happen? And you're talking to yourself. But there's a, there's a way to lead um, under the authority of God where it keeps a governor, it keeps a check on how things go. The common word with all of these, with follow your leaders and lead your followers, is this little word, your. There's an understanding of who the leaders are and an understanding of who's in the flock and who's not. A brief second on membership. That's why churches have membership. There's a friend of mine I know that listens to our podcast in England. Because we podcast our sermons, are the elders in charge here of anyone and everyone who ever listens to a service? If the band goes and plays at San Jose State Christian Club, are are we responsible to those? If you visit one time a year, are we shepherding those? Am I going to give an account for you? Who's in, who's out? Who are we to shepherd the, the, the flock? Who is the flock? That's part of what, what membership is. The way we talk about membership around here is, is define the relationship. Some of you have been in a relationship, and you're just like, where is this going? Are we an item or not an item? I don't even know what we're doing. We keep eating dinner together. I don't even know who pays. I don't know what's happening. Some of you have been in a relationship for a long time. Are we heading to marriage? Are we just, you know, what's happening? So define the relationship the same goes on with a, with, with, a, with a local church where you can kind of date nebulously for years. And then one tiny thing happens and someone splits or the pastor splits and, and there's been no definition of that. 
Membership allows elders to know, care, and give account for the flock that is entrusted to them. Membership also allows the flock to honor, follow, and pray for the leaders that are given to them. So many of you in this room are members. You've pursued membership and gone through our process. Um, we are not, uh, we, we don't promote and push membership uh, as a means of building a roster. We don't turn it in. No one gives me a gold star for who's in or who's out, any of that. We're looking at the scriptures and saying, God, we want to, we want to walk in a way that, that honors you. So if you have more questions about that, you can certainly come and talk to me. I want to invite the band up. Uh, we're going to spend the next about five minutes doing something that Christians do when they gather together, and that is to pray. Um, Colossians 4.2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And I'm going to give you two passages of Scripture that I would like to let it be used as kind of a launch pad for how you pray this morning. And we're going to do something that, uh, you know... Maybe comfortable, maybe uncomfortable, but I'm going to just invite you to, if you're comfortable, turn, turn to a few people nearby. If you're a family and you want to pray as a family, turn your chairs and, and pray as a family. If you don't want to get up and pray with anyone, pray silently right where you're at. Okay? So all around the room, we'll have small groups, we'll have individuals, however it works out. But I want to challenge you to pray. We've been for about six to seven weeks now in this series looking at the church and our prayers, what I, what I want to center our prayers on as we wrap up this series, is just to say, God, would you lift our eyes to, to see the bride of Christ and all she can be? I know that we haven't hit it yet. I know that we're not there yet. You have so much more for us. The, the two passages I'd like you to write down, unless you have an incredibly good memory, is Colossians 1, 9 to 14. Colossians 1, 9 to 14. And the second one, I'm going to read out loud, but, but you might want to turn to one of these as you're, as you're praying. So it kind of informs the direction that we're going to pray. The second one is Ephesians chapter, four, or, or chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. And although we're going to pray in here for a few minutes, the heartbeat would be that this conversation continues throughout the week. And in the months to come, that we would continue to pray for the church in this way. Listen to Ephesians 3.14. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Right now, Turn to one another, sit quietly, pray out loud, pray silently, however you feel led. We're going to pray in this room. I'll close this off in a couple of minutes, and we'll sing a closing song and dismiss. So stern and so angry when the church had gotten off course and had begun taking advantage of people under the name of God. 
And Father, we thank you for this place. I thank you for the history of this land and that this physical space, God, has been inhabited by Christians for about 50 years in this neighborhood, preaching the gospel, living the gospel, being a light in the community. God, these past six years as Neighborhood Bible Church, we praise you for the work that you've done. We thank you for the community that you have built here. We give you the praise and the glory. Help us, God, to follow your leadership with joy. Help us to to bless you, to honor you, to not cause groaning to you as we follow, Lord. I thank you for the wide range of talent and abilities and personalities and past experiences and past sins that you've rescued people from in this building. Jesus, we need your spirit amongst us to let walls be broken down, to learn to trust again, to be patient with one another's faults, to really get a sense that other people's needs are more important than my own needs. God, that we would have a culture in this church born of your spirit that says, let me outdo my brother and sister in giving honor. I pray that you'd grow that in us, Father. I pray that in a few moments, even as we share a meal, that we'd be able to give tangible expression to these ideas and not let it float around as a nice thought, but that we can live it out in our actions, in our words, in our attitudes. God, just now as we continue worshiping in song, in words, and in giving, Lord, I pray that all of it would be done from a pure motive as an act of worship to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.